Welcome to Mafia, a new podcast telling stories of America's criminal underworld. Gotti assumed the position of head of the Gambino family. And using the name Donnie Brasco, I was able to infiltrate the uh, Bonanno uh, crime family in New York City. Bugsy Siegel is an American mob legend. One man changed the whole texture and landscape of crime in America. Listen to Mafia every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite shows. 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9, ignition sequence start. Space Nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Space Nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hello again and welcome to Space Nuts. My name is Andrew Dunkley and with me as always, Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory. Hello, Fred. Hello, Andrew. Good to talk to you again. Uh, And today we're going to look at a a few things, a bit of an update on Blue Origin. They seem to have had more success. Uh, We're also going to look at uh, a situation that's not so positive um, with some astronomers that have uh, sent something up there and um, not going too well. Um, A photoplanetary disk, which doesn't sort of reveal much to me by name, but I'm sure you'll be able to explain it to us. I do my and best. finally, <laughs> defending Earth from aliens using lasers, and it's not what you think. <laughs> We're not shooting them, but we'll explain that later. But first, Fred, uh, Blue Origin. Now, this is, uh, this is one of those organisations that's, uh, that's looking to... Um, uh, make regular trips into space, and they're, uh, they've been experimenting with uh, vehicles to do just that, and they seem to have hit a, a bit of a purple patch. I think that's right. Yes, they're on a roll, Andrew. Um, so we've spoken about Blue Origin before. The, uh, the company, uh, which basically I think is built on Amazon money, uh, if I remember rightly, uh, the, um, the, 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 I think it might be the founder of Amazon who, um, who's, who's underwriting this company. Uh, but it's uh, doing exactly what you've said. They are, first of all, they are um, aiming to become one of the first uh, service providers to take space tourists up to a height of about 100 kilometres, have a look at the Earth from that height, see the curvature of the Earth, the the blackness of space, the thin membrane of the Earth's atmosphere, and experience a few minutes of weightlessness, and then come down safely. Um, and they, uh, they they use a different technology from the other lead player in this, which is Virgin Galactic. They fly something like a, an aircraft. Uh, it's a rocket plane that they use, whereas Blue Origin uses something much more like the traditional <clears throat> the tr- traditional space rocket, uh, a vertical. Uh, um, a rocket body with, <clears throat> excuse me, with um, engines down at the bottom and a capsule on top. The key thing about Blue Origin, though, and the, the reason why these successes are so remarkable, and this is their third in a row, uh, I think their first was uh, last November, uh, the, the, the reason they're so remarkable is that they are really pioneering the technology of bringing the booster rocket safely back down to Earth rather than just letting it drop uh, uselessly and wastefully away in, into the ocean, which is what happens with most uh, space launches. Uh, the other company that's pioneering this, of course, is SpaceX. They are trying the same trick and they've met with some success, but not completely. But they have the additional difficulty that they're actually <clears throat> bringing back rocket boosters from orbit. So these are ones that have launched 
at orbital, orbital speed, which is almost eight kilometers per second. Mm. Um, the Blue Origins uh, rocket doesn't achieve anything like that speed, just to go up and down again. However, it's a great story. They've done a great job. They've brought their uh, rocket booster safely back to Earth, landing on its tail. They've brought the capsule, which in this case was not, <clears throat> was not occupied by passengers, back to Earth on parachutes. And it looks as though they're they're on track for um, some tests with human passengers before too long. So the situation would be that uh, you would be launched like an astronaut would be launched in a rocket straight up. You would reach a point 100 kilometres up, hang around for a few seconds, float, take your photos. Hopefully you didn't, um, you know, didn't forget to charge the batteries. <laughs> and then you'd come back down and the thing would self-land vertically. Yeah, that's right. So the, the capsule separates from the rocket. Uh, whilst the rocket is still going up at something like one and a half kilometres per second. So the capsule sort of pushed off the front and just keeps on going uh, until it starts coming back, falling back down again. And it's during that period when the rocket motors are not firing that you feel the weightlessness mm. because you're in effectively what's called free fall. Even though you're going upwards, you're going to fall back down again. Yeah, um, I, I think that would be a more exciting way of doing it. I'm not going to sort of dismiss Virgin Galactic, but flying up, plane style versus being launched <laughs> two different experiences yeah they are indeed um, and you know it might work both ways there could be some people who would feel much more comfortable taking a, a space trip in something like an airplane rather than mm. sitting on top of top of a, a, a tank full of high explosive <laughs> indeed <laughs> Which, uh, yeah anyway right. it's, great it's a, stuff it's a story we we will keep on looking at because as they uh, as they get closer to a uh, a, a real launch with real people doing a real weightless excursion, um, that's, that's going to be most exciting. Uh, it'll be big news, that's right. And you'll hear it uh, first from the Space Knots. <laughs> and that's us, Andrew Dunkley and Fred Watson. Three, two, one. Space Nuts. Uh, next up, Fred, uh, a situation that is not so positive in the astronomical world, and uh, it, it's all to do with uh, the, uh, the search for uh, for X-rays. Astronomers uh, uh, have sent a satellite up there to to do some uh, analysis, I assume, but uh, something's not quite right. What's happening with uh, this one? That's right. This is um, actually a story that's been running now for a month or so. This is the um, uh, the Hitomi uh, Space Telescope, which apparently means the pupil of the eye in Japanese. It's a JAXA project, the Japanese Space Agency, but Hitomi does carry instruments built by other space agencies. The JAXA cost alone was almost a quarter of a billion US dollars. So a very advanced, very large spacecraft, one that doesn't carry passengers, of course. I think it's the sixth X-ray observatory that the Japanese have launched. And what they're aiming to do with this spacecraft is to observe the X-ray universe. That means looking at... Uh, events of very high energies taking place deep in the universe, maybe colliding black holes, uh, you know, black holes swallowing up uh, um, debris around them, uh, things of that sort. And, and indeed, um, galaxies themselves, which um, in, under certain conditions have uh, huge uh, clouds of X-ray emitting gas around them. So mm -hmm. um, that telescope was launched, uh, if I remember rightly, it was back in the middle of February, uh, and they were still running through all the checks and all the, um, you know, the, the, the test runs uh, when on the um, 26th of March, uh, basically, uh, JAXA, the space agency, lost contact with it. Uh, the radar uh, images that come from the U.S. Joint Space Operations Center showed that suddenly there wasn't one spacecraft there. There were five pieces of debris. Um, and the orbit itself changed. It actually... Um, 
There was a very sudden and dramatic change in the orbit. Now, um, what gives people hope is that shortly after that, uh, a very weak signal was received from the spacecraft, and that suggests that bits of it are still intact. But the concern is, and this is borne out by observations made with optical telescopes from Earth, uh, the concern is that it's lost its stability, that it's actually tumbling. Uh, mm. There are people who have recorded that something, the, the, the spacecraft changing in brightness, which suggests it's actually tumbling. That means its solar panels are not locked on the sun. That means it's not uh, having its batteries recharged. And so the longer um, we delay getting a signal back from this spacecraft, the more likely it is that, that it will never be recovered. And that's the concern that, um, that you know, uh, this, this loss of signal, it could be fatal. How uh, far out is it? It's about uh, 600 kilometres. So right. it's, it's high enough that it, it's unlikely to, um, to, to have a, what's called a, a, an uncontrolled re-entry. It won't get slowed down by the Earth's atmosphere and, and come, you know, re-enter within the next uh, few years anyway. But um, it's, it's not, uh, you know, it's not, it's not anywhere that anybody can go and fix it. Yeah, um, that's what I was going to ask next, yeah. next because they've, they've sent sort of repair missions to Hubble and things like that. Indeed, the they did, that's right. This one sounds like it's just out of reach. That's right. Actually, Hubble's in, in a similar height orbit, but that was mm. a very special mission. It was one of the last uh, space shuttle missions. The, the only thing that I guess provides hope is that um, the Japanese have got this track record of, of pulling, you know, pulling projects back from the brink of disaster, uh, including um, their their spacecraft uh, Akatsuki, I think it is pronounced, mm -hmm. which uh, was a spacecraft going to orbit around Venus. Um, and it didn't make it. It didn't go into orbit. But five years later, it did. When, they, when the Japanese kind of recovered it and basically put it onto a different trajectory, uh, uh, Akatsuki went into orbit around the sun, uh, but they, they, they managed to rejig re the orbit and, and bring it back. Uh, for a second successful attempt. So there is this track record of, uh, of saving troubled spacecraft. And maybe, maybe Hitomi will be one of those. I believe, though, that even before uh, this, these troubles started, uh, Hitomi did set, take some observations, uh, X-ray observations, and sent them back uh, to Earth. Uh, we need far more, of course, but, um, but uh, we'll just have to see what happens. It's still a, an ongoing story, Andrew. And they have no idea what happened. It's it's a mystery. Um, a collision with space debris, uh, maybe a micrometeorite that um, uh, hit it, maybe, and perhaps less likely, a battery explosion, uh, or or even you know a, a gas uh, leak that has basically disturbed the um, disturbed the uh, equilibrium of the spacecraft. We don't know. Somebody used a Phillips head screwdriver when they should have used a flathead. You never know. You don't know. Okay, we'll keep an eye on that. Uh, it would be a terrible, terrible loss financially if they can't get anything back and it's it's gone forever, but uh, that's the risk you take, isn't it? Indeed, that's right, yes. Mm. You're listening to Space Nuts with me, Andrew Dunkley, and astronomer Fred Watson. Now, let's turn our attention, Fred, to um, a detailed image of what is called a photoplanetary disk. I have no idea. Um, um, it, uh, forgive me for um, being pedantic, but it is actually a protoplanetary disk. Proto. What did yeah. I say? Photo. 
<laughs> you, you need the other glasses on, Andrew. Yes, they're not. <laughs> the ones I've got on. I'm about a year overdue to replace yeah, them. Right. <laughs> yeah. um, I know. I know exactly what you mean because I sometimes read things and, and and then think about it later and realise that I actually read the wrong word with mm. the wrong glasses on. It's, it's a proto. It's not, it's not good for radio either. No, it wouldn't be. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, the, your, your uh, podcasting would would actually uh, be damaged by that. Oh, it's podcasting. Sorry. Definitely. Yes. Now, proto a protoplanetary proto disc. disc. What are these? So, what that means is it's the disc of material that uh, sort of precedes the formation of planets. Uh, so, a protoplanetary disc is a disc of material that is going to turn into planets. Um, and we know these things exist because we've seen lots of evidence of them and some direct images of them with um, with particular telescopes. Uh, it is believed that our sun went through this phase 4.6 billion years ago. The sun would have had a disk of material around it from which the planets formed. There's still kind of evidence of that in the debris that we find in the asteroid belt uh, between Mars and Jupiter. That's a remnant of the, the sun's protoplanetary disk. But this particular one is around a star that, um, even though it's quite a long way away in terms of, uh, you know, the, the miles and kilometres, it's 175 light years away. Uh, and one light year is nine and a half trillion kilometres. So it is a very big distance. But that's quite nearby in terms of the stars that we study. And so uh, it's called TW Hydri. It's in the constellation of Hydra, Southern Hemisphere constellation. And it, um, it has a protoplanetary disk, which by coincidence is exactly face on to our direction. So um, you don't see this sort of tilted over at an angle. We see it face on. We ac actually see the disk um, as a circle, in fact, a circle of material. Uh, now, what has happened is that this has been observed with the Atacama Large Millimeter Array, ALMA. Uh, I was there, actually, uh, only six months ago. Uh, it's in the high Andes. Uh, you can hardly breathe. The atmosphere is so rarefied. But ALMA um, is a, a millimeter wave telescope. That means it's a radio telescope that looks at very short wavelength radio waves. And what it's doing is picking up radio waves from the dust in this disk of material around TW Hydri, and, and it actually uh, is able to make an image of the disk. And lo and behold, when you do that, there are two gaps in it, which show up very, very clearly in the images. And those gaps are where we believe planets are actually, uh, are actually forming. Um, the, the two gaps, one's about 3 billion kilometres from the star itself. One is about twice that, 6 billion kilometres uh, from the star. And they're similar to the distances from the Sun to Uranus is about 3 billion kilometres, out to Pluto is, a, is about 6 billion kilometres. So um, these are, you know, they're, they're relatively large-scale um, objects that are forming. But the suggestion is that we might be seeing something like a super-Earth forming in each of these two rings. And by a super-Earth, we mean something that's maybe got some... Uh, four to ten times the mass of the Earth, perhaps 50% of the diameter, more than the diameter of the Earth. So very exciting observations. And, uh, of course, the details of this reveal a lot about the way planets form. It, it all feeds into our understanding of the planet formation process. So, so essentially we're observing 
a process that creates a solar system. Would that be fair to say? Exactly. That's uh, precisely what it is. Uh, the fact that we're seeing two planets forming simultaneously uh, is, yes, it tells you it's a solar system. And how long do we have to hang around to see the results? So, look, it's probably something like, uh, not very long, only a million years or so, oh. but that would see us, you know, to, to planets, because we do know from other evidence that planet formation is relatively rapid once it, once it starts. That is pretty quick. In astronomical it, it terms. is in astronomical terms, that's right, yeah. Still, even if it was 100 years, it'd be too long too for long us. Too long for us, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say right. put it in the diary, but no. Yes, <laughs> don't bother, don't bother. <laughs> Uh, you're listening to Space Nuts with uh, Andrew Dunkley and Fred Watson. Uh, Fred from the Australian Astronomical Observatory, me from my lounge. Space Nuts. And, and finally, Fred, we're going to look at the defence of the planet using lasers so that we can protect ourselves from aliens. Now, the first thought is, you know, Star Wars shooting them down so that they can't take over the planet. You know, science fiction suggests that's the only kind of alien that would ever visit, except ET. He was a bit soft. But um, <laughs> yeah. they're, not, they're not going to use lasers to shoot them down. They're going to use lasers uh, as, as a sort of a cloak. How does this work? Um, it, it's a very interesting uh, topic, Andrew. And um, w w we're all slightly bemused as to the fact that this appeared in a very prestigious journal, the monthly notices of the Royal Astronomical Society, but it appeared the day before April the 1st. Yes, and very suspicious. Very suspicious, but I've looked at the paper and the details are really pretty sound. Uh, it's the, a, the thing is, though, if you're going to do an April Fool's Day joke, you should do it on April Fool's Day, <laughs> otherwise it doesn't really work. No, it doesn't scan. And, and you've got to make it funny. And this is more intellectually stimulating than funny. Mm. What, what these guys are suggesting, and it's two, um, it's two American academics, in fact, um, they ha they're from Columbia University in New York. And I think they're absolutely on the level. And I think their research is actually very interesting. But what they've suggested is that, you know, um, we have discovered uh, evidence for many, many Earth-like planets by watching the intensity of the light coming from their parent stars and seeing how that light dips when this planet forms, when a planet passes in front of its parent star. Yes. There's been a project called Kepler. It's a spacecraft which uh, stared for a number of years at 100,000 stars and, and basically registered that many of these stars had this slight dip in intensity and it's periodic. It happens on a regular basis over a matter of weeks or years. And what it tells you is that there is a planet passing in front of the parent star that's reducing the intensity very slightly. It's not much because, um, for example, if Jupiter passes in front of the disk of our sun and you're looking at it from a long way away, it only drops the sunlight by 1%. And for the Earth, it's much, much less. But nevertheless, you can still make accurate measurements and deduce it, that. It's enough for intelligent life to say, ah. Aha. Aha. That's exactly right, which Let's is what we're doing. Let's go suss that out. That's what they we're doing. They might have, you know, better lollies than we do. I don't or, know. Or whatever. They might mm. be quite tasty themselves. Look, we that's <laughs> right. So so the... the um, the idea that these uh, astronomers have proposed is that if you were worried about the fact that we are revealing our presence out in the depths of the universe by the fact that the Earth transits across the disk of the sun uh, and lowers its intensity slightly, you Sorry, could... We're, we're quite naturally revealing our it, presence. It's that's just... right, yes, with, with no... Yeah, it just tells, it, tells you that there's a planet there. You could actually uh, cloak it. You could fool anybody watching 
into into not knowing that there is this planet going around the sun. And the way you do it is with a laser. So um, the, tr the the downside is that you have to direct one laser for each um, star that you want to um, that, that basically that you want to uh, deceive into thinking there's no planet there. Um, it's not that many. It's not many as many as you might think because uh, these transits, as they call, only happen to stars that are uh, uh, seen from stars that lie along the ecliptic. And the ecliptic is the path of the sun through our sky. It's the plane of the Earth's orbit. So it's only when you're looking directly along that plane that you would see the Earth passing in front of the sun. So that means from our perspective, you can identify the stars that you need to point the laser at uh, when there is a transit going on. And that uh, is done by pointing the laser in the opposite direction from the Earth, uh, it's for a matter of, um, I think it's 10 hours or something like that, that you've got to do it. Uh, it doesn't have to be that big a laser either. It's not something, you know, like a mega laser. It, it is fairly beefy, uh, but it's one that uh, is well within the, the, um, the remit of modern optical technology. So whether you would ever want to do that or not is a very good question. <laughs> but the wherewithal to do it seems to exist in the form of uh, laser, laser cloaking. Of course, we're assuming there are aliens out there that want to come and eat us. Yes, so, you exactly. know, if everybody agrees that that's a possibility, then perhaps laser cloaking is the way to go. Otherwise, it's just uh, maybe an April Fool's Day <laughs> or joke after all. Uh, yeah, that's right. Who wouldn't uh, know? There, there are subtleties to it because, of course, a laser only operates at one, one wavelength of light, one colour of light. And... Um, you know, so if the aliens had a different filter on their telescope, they could still see the dip. Mm. So you, and of course, got... there's also the question of hiding our radio signals. Yes, there's all that as well. <laughs> That's right. Which are already in deep space. They are. They've already gone out there. Yes, mm. that's exactly right. So, look, I, um, I think it's a very interesting uh, piece, piece of work. Maybe not one that everybody will be rushing to put into action uh, anytime soon. Well, we'll wait and see. And when the invasion begins, they'll say, I told you so. That's right. <laughs> Why didn't you close us? Mm. <laughs> All right, Fred, always nice to talk to you. Thank you so much. Great pleasure, Andrew. Good to talk again, and we'll see you next time. For sure. Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory. And from me, Andrew Dunkley, thank you for listening to The Space Nuts. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Twitter and send Fred your questions. We're always keen to hear from you. Space Nuts. You've been listening to The Space Nuts Podcast. Subscribe to the full podcast on iTunes, Audioboom and Stitcher or your favourite podcast distributor. This has been another quality podcast production from Fights.com. From Audioboom comes Covert, a new podcast that delves into the murky world of spies, soldiers, and top-secret military operations. I'm Jamie Rennell, and together we'll discover the real stories of history's greatest classified missions, told by the operatives, soldiers, and journalists who experienced it firsthand. Follow Covert on Spotify or subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite shows.